Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Adam Gurry. He's founder and editor-in-chief of Liberal Currents. And we're discussing an article he recently wrote called Censorship, Social Sanctions, and Access to Audiences. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Adam. Thank you for having me. Why is free speech suddenly such a topic of debate? Well, I think it flares up every so often. I mean, in my lifetime, it sort of ties back to the whole political correctness debate. And there's been sort of different incarnations of that you know, rising and falling over the years. This one is tied to what's now called cancel culture, what a few years ago was called call-out culture. But it's essentially specifically the uh, the sort of online mob phenomenon where someone gets, people get outraged about some specific figure and as a result, they get fired or perhaps even Twitter gets talked into banning them from the platform. This this also gets tied to the, some of the camp, campus activism, though I feel like somehow that's been less talked about lately than the social media stuff. Um, but, you know, the campus activism where they're trying to get uh, speakers literally canceled, their their visits, their lecture visits canceled to a particular university. And then there's a lot of, because of the partisan environment we're in right now, there's a lot of very energetic debate on each side about the merits of this, um, which I think could probably be detached from the actual actors. Man, many of the people who are justifying, you know, saying this is all right or not to worry about are not themselves people who are engaging in canceling. So there's sort of a high-level intellectual debate going on at the same time. Do you think something about maybe the media environment – well, I don't even mean just the media environment, but in the last 20 years and especially in the last 10 years, we've had social media go on the rise and the ability for people to find outlets and niche media and just the whole schism of our media environment. Do you think it's possible that some of that is fueling this sort of resurgent of free, various free speech concerns that you outlined in your article? Yeah. Um, I think there's a couple of things, most of which are tied to the big platforms. Um, I think in the first wave of the web, there was a lot of the niches were the, were the main driver of online behavior. So we all sort of fell into our different sub-communities, essentially. Um, and the sub-communities still exist, but uh, the, the massive social media platforms, and you could also throw Google into this in the way that it stitched together the web, obviously from much earlier on through its search products. Um, with uh, what, all the sub-communities still sort of exist, but they're thrown together into this big common space. So they've differentiated themselves from each other. They're thrown together and they essentially start going at it uh, in the middle. So I think that's that's a big part of it as well. Your article is effectively a, a argument for why the argument that we're all enmeshed in right now is not as fruitful as it could be. So what do you see as wrong with the current free speech debates, I guess writ large, you know, across all of the places that they seem to be happening? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think especially in America, because of the First Amendment and the culture around it, free speech is just such a like transcendental ideal almost 
um, you know, sacred, it has almost sacred status. And so we try and uh, lump a lot of different concerns under that label, which I don't think is very helpful. And it's certainly not how it works in the actual law. So what, what I wanted to do, I, I think, I think in sort of like, you know, hot, hot take dynamics where you're mostly just trying to get attention, there's actually an incentive to lump too many things together uh, because that's guaranteed to both get the people who agree with you to say, haha, we're discrediting a bunch of other things too for the other side. And also to get a bunch of angry people saying, wait, wait, no, no, you're lumping some good things in with the bad and that's not fair. Um, and that gets a lot of attention, right? So what I wanted to do was to unbundle some of the things that get bundled in. Uh, and specifically, I wanted to talk about just sort of things I could deal with structurally. One of the criticisms I received for the piece was that there's some other more cultural things that I didn't touch on, which I think is a fair criticism. But just thinking structurally, you know, the original early liberal concern with free speech was about state censorship. But there are other concerns that are fine. John Stuart Mill, very concerned with social sanctions uh, and conformism. So I, I talked a bit about social sanctions as well and, and how that interacts with freedom of association, because I don't think anyone actually would defend a general freedom from social sanctions. I think even, even J.S. Mill had a very targeted thing in mind. And lastly, I wanted to talk about something implicit and that people like, I think, Scott Alexander have talked about a little more explicitly, but it's sort of the technological and social you know, structure of that make it possible to access audiences just as a normal individual. Um, so how open the media system is, is the way I, I phrased it. The uh, access to audiences portion was interesting because it's something that was a predominant concern, what I dealt with a lot uh, more around the time that the Citizens United decision, which was a campaign finance decision about corporate expenditures in elections. But the argument always behind the campaign finance one was ultimately that some people have more of an access to a voice. So it's not just that government is supposed to obey the First Amendment and not restrict your speech. So if you have a podium in a speaker's park, they, can, they can't take away your podium. But that also, also should be concerned with whether or not other people have podiums and that that changes everything. Is this something that we should be concerned with if we're liberals? So from taking it from the online perspective, I used to be very idealistic about the whole idea of the long tail and just saying, you know, this, I, was, you know I was like, you know, this is when I was like 20 years old or something. Just thinking we can just get rid of the head of the tail, you know, and let's just all have our own little micro communities. And that's going to be the most creative uh, and, you know, uh, egalitarian uh, way of, of structuring the media environment. Um, so, you know, I was very active in the blogosphere. Um, and you felt like even if you were a relatively small fry there, everyone sort of was talking to everyone else. Um, but, uh, you know, reading more up on it, the, the way that audiences actually work in practice is when you get something like the internet, there's actually more skew. Um, and that's partly because of how big the head gets. Uh, because now, you know, Harry Potter, for example, can be the largest book franchise, you know, book plus media franchise in history. Um, 
because it can be a global phenomenon that's you know right around the world and that's not just the internet obviously that's globalization writ large but that intercon you know the interconnection can create bigger blockbusters than ever which makes the head of the tail bigger but the other aspect is the longer you make the long tail the more you get a you know a lot of people with a teeny tiny number of audiences at the same time that you're getting um you know blockbusters with the biggest audiences ever um so you know it's to use tyler cohen's phrase the when you're looking at the actual audiences it's always going to be more of an averages over situation um and i think there's ne the network scientists have looked into the this and demonstrated it pretty thoroughly um so we should be concerned we we, sh we sh should be but i i still so on on the one hand so yes, we should be concerned. I think so because we we don't want to get into a situation where just a handful of, of big platforms um, dominate the conversation, which was obviously less in a, uh, less the case now, even with as big as our blockbusters can be, as it was mid-century with a few you know the big three networks and a, a few national newspapers that everyone read and, and things like that. Um, but I, I sort of had trouble getting at how you what's the ideal here, right? What do you what are we actually trying to accomplish? And I think it runs into exactly what you probably ran into with the Citizens United stuff, which is that well, Citizens United, which everyone talks about as a terrible case, um, but it was specifically criticizing a powerful person, Hillary Clinton, right? You know, so like, do do we really want to hamstring people? from criticizing powerful people just because the ones that are criticizing them are also powerful. Um, so what, what are the means of approaching this? Um, and my feeling was this, this idea of um, sort of thinking probabilistically about just a normal person who doesn't have an audience, your pre-existing audience, really, uh, what are their odds of getting one uh, of getting an audience? Um, and under certain media environments, that's, it's much lower than others. Um, and that has a lot to do with just barriers to entry for one thing in a broadcast environment, it takes a massive capital investment in order to get your foot in the door. They're going to, they only have so many hours in the day um, for so many stations. Um, you know, so only so many people are going to get heard. Um, but on the internet, that barrier doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that you're going to get heard. But there's a there's a really good um, Scott Alexander post from a couple of years back where he asked, "Can someone be both popular and silenced?" Um, and his answer was not necessarily not necessarily yes to being silenced, but yes that people could could absolutely you know a huge amount of social sanctions could be rained down on a person to try and silence them, even though they are actually massively popular. Um, is the way that I would, I guess, rephrase his point. Um, but the thing that stuck with me is he said, you know, there was a lot of talk in the in the 90s, in the early 2000s about making the, the internet, making things censorship proof. And we focused a lot on how that failed, but we've sort of stopped talking about how successful that really was. It was very successful. But even there, if we're talking about access, it seems like that access was moving. There's two different ways we could think about it. So if we go back 100 years or 50 years, and if you wanted to get an audience, you needed 
a lot of upfront capital because you either had to figure out how to print and distribute your own newspaper or set up your own radio station or set up your own television station. Like that was outside of the reach of almost everybody. Um, and so we had, you know, the alternative was like mimeographing your zines and mailing them out, but you were never going to get a large audience that way. Right. And, and so the, but the, the material you needed to do that, like if, you know, if you had the, the capital, then the, the materials you needed to do that, the printing presses or whatever, you could buy those and then you could use those under your own control. Now, what we've seen, you know, call it since the rise of like the blogosphere and then social media is the upfront capital costs of getting distribution to effectively the entire world, or at least enabling the entire world to see your stuff if they want to, has dropped to close to zero. You know, so back when it was the blogosphere, like you could set up a blogger account and it didn't cost you anything, and then your blog could be read by everybody. But the materials that you need to do it, are now platforms. They're Twitter or Blogger um, or WordPress. And yes, some people can, you know, install them on their own servers and do all of that, but that's outside of the reach of, you know, that has other costs in terms of knowledge and and expenses that aren't there. So the zero cost one depends now on gatekeepers in the way that it didn't used to. Um, and so it's it feels like we could think of it as Access has increased, but you're now more at the mercy of the platforms that if if blogger decided you know they don't like you anymore, they can kick you off and it's very hard to find that audience again or if Twitter decides they don't like you anymore, they can kick you off and it's hard to find that audience again and I wonder if this is where some of the worries when people you know we we gripe that people like misapply the term censorship that censorship is something the state does, and when Twitter kicks you off, it's not censorship it's a private you know it's it's a private entity deciding not to associate with you anymore, and that's fine, and we support that ability, but it feels closer to censorship because these platforms are so large and the audience is overwhelmingly only there that if you get kicked off, it feels like you know being shoved out the door of the country. You've been exiled, and so it looks more like censorship. So is there is there a tension there in terms of openness? Yeah, I think so. I mean – I think probably less than that makes it sound like. I feel like there's there's a a potential threat. Maybe and then maybe that's easy for me to say because I know that especially in the last couple of years, like YouTube and and Twitter and Facebook have more actively pushed out, um, you know, certain categories of content producers. But uh, for the most part, I think if if we're thinking mostly in terms of normal people who do not yet have audiences at all, the situation is overwhelmingly optimistic um, compared to any other time. Um, there, There is a tension though. I, as audience are, audiences are super concentrated in these platforms. Um, I don't think, I don't think gatekeeper is quite the right word for what they are though, because Gatekeeper implies that the door is closed and they have to open it to let you in, and that was the actual broadcast and you know traditional publishing situation. Whereas this, it's more like it's come one, come all, and then they decide whether they kick you off the island, um, which is a different kind of threat, um, but not no no less a threat. I think um, I don't agree with uh, those 
who would like Facebook and uh, and Twitter to be more actively policing, you know, acceptable points of view. Um, I'm not too worried about where it is at this stage. I'm more just sort of in principle in favor of the old decentralized model. Um, but the old decentralized model, I think, was not as good at offering potential audiences to people as this one. So I, I do think it's a tension um, that's hard to tease out. It's interesting you brought up this, you know, because you said, you know, they have expanded some of the content that they've clamped down on. And nothing that I say or even want to say, I think, uh, would cause me to be banned from one of these platforms. But if you try and imagine yourself, like, just say all the opinions I have now become completely f forbidden by Twitter. Uh, because everything switches and libertarianism is suddenly considered to be, you know, inherently racist, which a lot of people think that anyway. And Twitter starts just banning free market rhetoric and things like this. Um, then in my opinion might change. It's, it's kind of hard or my feelings about it. I could say they're allowed to ban me, but I think this is stupid. But then you get this problem where, you know, you start thinking substantively. <clears throat> You're a mad procedurally that you got banned. But you also believe that your ideas should be heard to make the world a better place. And now they're actually pulling these levers to make sure that people can't hear about these ideas. And that's what I always find it interesting, whether or not you can take an ideologue who complains about being banned from Twitter and separate their complaints from the substance of what they believe that they think other people should believe in. And I can see how that would be concerning to someone. And I don't want to be on the other side of that, uh, provided my beliefs just don't change and they're just run-of-the-mill libertarianism. Um, and again, there, the question is, you know, would we then stand up and say something needs to be done about this? Yeah. I mean, I think – so I think um, – you know, part of free speech is you can turn around and say Twitter is being completely ridiculous uh, and they should stop doing this, right? Um, or, it's you know, it's being morally unconscionable um, by cutting out these legitimate voices. I, I also think we shouldn't exaggerate the extent to which the audiences are only here, are only in, in the platforms. There are There is still a large media ecosystem beyond them. Um, obviously they rely, they, they go there and they try and pump up views, but like, you know, and Fox to, to just list a few, uh, you know, Fox news and MSNBC and, and the New York times and, uh, national review and the federalist, like all of these places with a wide variety of ideologies that they cater to have audiences. Some of them have managed to build their audiences primarily through social media. Um, others are older um, and have built them otherwise, but still make use of social media. But I think if if the platforms got together as a cartel and cut these off tomorrow, um, first of all, I think there would still be people on the platforms talking about the fact that it was cut off, and that would be extremely hard to police at scale. Um, and second of all, I think that that would not kill those those uh, those businesses outright. I mean, I think it would be hard. I also think initially it might serve as marketing for them, as tends to happen. Like Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos had this dynamic for a while where every time Twitter banned him, it sort of increased his brand rather than diminished it. Um, and he really only was toppled once 
his financial backers decided he wasn't worth it anymore. Um, but obviously not everyone has financial backers in the first place. So the fact that he could afford to do that and leverage it that way, um, but that, but that, you know, but that's how the market works, right? That's so a lot of these, it's hard to tease out what the actual risks are uh, because these platforms get used to build up businesses, media businesses, which then have their own audiences, even though they're still relying on, on the platform, the extent to which they could persist with those audiences if they lost the platform um, or leverage the hostility of the platform in order to build up even more audiences, perhaps um, is an open question. And we've seen, you know, We've only seen a limited number of cases, and and since many of the cases that Twitter or YouTube have gone after have been like, you know, like the Daily Stormer or something, something that's like fairly straightforwardly white nationalist, that is even now still such a niche uh, that you know if it hurts them, it's unsurprising because they were on the smaller end of the tail, um, you know, re- relative to the Fox News. And, you know, frankly, I'm not sorry that they would be hurt. Well, it's interesting that you, you kind of describe one version there. If we do imagine Twitter and social media companies becoming more censorious of what are even quite mainstream views, which I don't think is wildly impl- implausible, but then everyone kind of goes and takes their ball to their own court and starts playing their own game, as we've seen happen on like as the websites you've linked you've listed. So you only read the Federalist and National Review. You only watch MSNBC, which of course is where we are. It seems to me that, that that could be part of the problem because when you are walled off in your own little idea bubble, you have a very difficult time understanding why people hold other viewpoints because you simply don't actually encounter them. And so you start – what I've seen in, in my life, especially in campaign finance, you start postulating – other reasons they hold these viewpoints uh, that are based not in reason, but in nefarious influences of things like the NRA or corporations or Fox News or whatever. And then that kind of causes the censorious impulse to rise again. And you say, well, shutting down Fox News or One American News Network, I mean, they're just liars. So it would be for the public good to shut down Fox News. And maybe that's something we should be concerned with too, that we go too much into our own little teams. Yeah, it's hard because I don't think mere exposure is enough or has necessarily been predictably helpful. Like, I I think there's a number of studies that show that a lot of the people who behave the way that you just described, which is definitely something that many people do, um, aren't necessarily not exposed to, like a a lot of people who are avid, you know, Federalist readers or, or whatever, actually will go and read the New York Times and and whoever, and and still interpret them in a hostile way, let's say. Like, it, the fact that they get exposure just means that they've sort of learned the moves that people will make in the, the argument game, um, but they just see it as that game, and they know, you know, they've, they've already dis- decided which side they're on, um, and they just use the exposure as sort of material for... Um, amping up their their attack on it i don't know if i'm describing it very well but do you get what i mean some sometimes exposure just sort of yeah they go to the new york times to be angry at it yeah exactly yeah exactly so uh, to, to give a maybe eccentric example 
Um, in 2014, I was writing about the neo-reactionaries. Um, and the reason I was doing this is because all of a sudden people were talking about them within my network. I was kind of uncomfortable with this fact because I didn't really like them. Um, uh, but I wanted to, you know, go and see what, what was up with them. And I, you know, I wrote about them essentially. I wrote a criticism. Um, but in getting to learn about them, what I found interesting was, uh, you know, Curtis Yarvin, who went by Mencius Moldbook at the time, he didn't want the 15 minutes of fame that they were getting at that moment. He pretty much ghosted as soon as they started getting popular. Um, and what 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 happened really was there was a, a sub community, a fairly small one with some pretty objectionable views, but also pretty harmless because they were just a little sub-community that as Twitter in particular got bigger, um, but also like Gawker was around back then, there was a very particular sort of like media dynamic that was developing where they were were going around and digging up sub-communities like that to say, look at this huge scary threat, you know, that that, that exists. Um, But so essentially when they were just a sub community, they were more or less harmless. They were happy to, you know, with one another. It was fine in my opinion um, for, as a pluralist. Um, But once we all got sort of stitched together, actually um, it became extremely toxic. Uh, There was one guy in particular who I, when I, because I talked to many of them to write this piece, there was one guy who had completely crazy ideas. I mean, he was a monarchist, uh, among other things, but it was actually a fairly reasonable person to talk to when I wrote the piece. And by the end of the year, after sort of going all in on the the culture war aspect of it, as it became more, if it, as it get gained more mainstream attention, he he was a complete n- n- nutbag. Like he he went off a complete cliff. I mean, possibly there are just other psychological reasons for that. But what what I my my takeaway from that was that there's some things that are okay when sort of concentrated in small sub communities that aren't bothering anyone that when, when we all become part of a much larger public conversation, uh, just become completely toxic for, for everyone involved, including the critics of this whole subculture, but even for the people themselves, they become worse versions of themselves. You mentioned the New York times and other publications, and they have been, in the news lately as part of this debate because particularly conservative writers have been leaving them either because they say they were forced out or because they felt it had become too toxic for them to be there because their colleagues didn't want them there and so on. And and this gets brought up as an example of, I guess, the restricting sphere of socially acceptable speech, that it's the, the sphere of acceptable speech is narrowing. And I I've often wondered if that's sticking to the media environment right now, um, because this is this might be a different question if we talk about like college campuses. But sticking to the media environment, I wonder if that's really the case, or if it's that a lot of publications that a lot of large publications that for a long time paid lip service to ideological diversity. You know, like the Times would have its handful of token conservative writers or the Post would have its handful of token conservative writers, have opted to become more ideologically aligned the way that most other publications are. I mean, you run Liberal Currents, which is 
has its ideological view, which is fine. It has a perspective. And Trevor and I work for the Cato Institute, which is an organization that exists to advance a particular set of views. That doesn't seem to be a problem, but there does seem to be an objection to when the New York Times or similar publications do it. And it gets framed as they're they're deplatforming these people, you know, they're shutting down their speech, but it seems like it's just moving elsewhere. You know, I was I checked so Andrew Sullivan was was all over a couple of weeks ago because he publicly left New York magazine on on basically on the grounds that he was being canceled. It was no longer, you know, a friendly place to his viewpoint. And this was held up as like, you know, free speech being curtailed. But he moved to Substack, the the paid newsletter platform. Um, which I'll just say, I the conspiracy theorist in me wonders if Substack is behind cancel culture because <laughs> they're cashing in on all these people coming to them. Them and but, Patreon. Yes, but according to Substack, he's now the number five top paid publication, and it doesn't give exact numbers, but it says he has thousands of subscribers paying him $5 a month. So he's doing pretty okay. Um, he certainly has an audience and a platform. So are, are we seeing... Are we seeing like a shrinking, like a curtailing of speech, or are we simply seeing publications saying, no, we'd like to have our perspective maybe more than we did in the past? And if that's the case, is that something that should worry us? Like, should we be bothered that the New York Times is maybe slightly less ideologically diverse than it used to be? I'm not bothered, but I've also never been a New York Times guy. Like, I never, you know, I've always been very cynical about the role in our country that the New York times has claimed the mantle of. Um, I, I've somewhat softened on that, I guess. Uh, it's not like I love the idea of returning to an era of partisan presses um, necessarily, but I don't think, I, I think you have to take the, the bigger view and that's what I'm talking about with the open media ecosystem. Uh, idea, um, and you summarize well. I mean, S- Substack is good. It's good to get more players. Of course, Substack, if Substack is successful, it threatens to simply replicate the same concern as Facebook and Twitter and even Patreon. I know Patreon has has thrown out people that they found unacceptable, though fairly modestly compared to the other ones, I think. Though, obviously, the more of these platforms you get, the better, um, the, the less likely that they're all going to band together and ban the same people. Um, but yeah, I mean, effectively right now, Andrew Sullivan can leave and immediately be making money on Substack. Um, Barry Weiss has a ton of places that she can go. Um, I don't know what happened to James Bennett. Everyone talked about him for a hot second, but I'm not actually sure where he's ended up lately. <laughs> Um, might be actually harder to be an editor. I don't know. Well, aside from aside from canceling people due to what Aaron said, being we are the New York Times, we have decided we want to have this ideology. We have this aspect of, as you mentioned, cancel culture or and shaming, which I think you rightly point out. It probably is hard to imagine anyone who doesn't think that it shouldn't ever happen. Um, that especially the libertarian response and the, and the liberal response, uh, you know, the best remedy to speech, you know, is is more speech. And if someone says something offensive, you would like to know who the offensive person is, and then you can shame them in some way. Uh, but is it 
also the case that this goes too far, or should we just be generally for this kind of you know firing, shamings, blacklisting that that has been going on recently? Yeah, it's hard to answer that categorically. I mean, my my personal feeling about the the drama at the New York Times is is that I simply don't care um, for that for those specific examples. Um, I'm interested in, and I think Ezra Klein pointed this out. A specific dynamic, which is that it's not actually that the New York Times organizationally has decided they want to be a certain way. It's actually that the young uh, journalists and just individual journalists on their staff have brand individual brands of their own on social media. You know, essentially, by getting hired by a New York Times, you get the byline, you get to you get the association on various social media that you're the person who wrote it you get to build your own individual audience that way that there that then gets to be used as leverage to influence internal new york times policy so what happened in the new york times case wasn't that uh, the owner or the editorial team decided we're going to go in this direction now it was that a bunch of specific journalists uh, applied pressure through social media and through internal like slack channels and things like that um that I don't know how I, I mean, it. I, I I'm of two minds about that. On the one hand, that's good because it actually limits the downside of these things. Journalists build their individual audiences, and that means that if they end up on the wrong end of social sanctioning uh, of this kind, um, or you know, firing, the the cushion there's a cushion to their fall because they can say to any other publication, I've got this built-in audience. And there's very few... Turning an audience into a paying opportunity, if you have an actual audience of any scale, of of reasonable scale, uh, is not a difficult problem to solve. Um, But as for how we should feel about this in general, it's really hard. I think you have to get into the, the substance, the substantive values and say, was it a good or not case this time? It's it's hard to avoid that. I, I think in my piece, I try and talk about how you think about this structurally. And I, I honestly don't know how I feel about at-will employment versus for-cause, you know, have, forcing people to fire for-cause. I see the trade-offs there. Um, when I think probably some limited protections, you know, some minimal protections are probably a good idea in principle. But it's not something that I feel expert enough on. Yeah. To, well, it to, seems as you on the case by case basis, as you said, it's um, the best I've been able to come up with is uh, the sort of infamous one, probably about five years ago now, the has Justine landed yet incident. Oh, um, yeah, that where was she bad. made a, a a poor joke, um, but but was mobbed and fired. And the question of whether or not what you said or did was a pattern of behavior or just a slip of the tongue, because people do that. Um, and we're now prepared to, you know, possibly fire people for a slip of the tongue, as opposed to being like, no, that person's actually a racist, whether they, they made an off-color joke and didn't think through their actions. I think that's the best I can do. But of course, that doesn't get you, that still keeps you on a case-by-case basis. So a, a good friend of mine who I won't, won't name because she doesn't like a lot of public attention, said that and who's, who's actually very sympathetic to a lot of the values of the sort of like lefty cancel culture people in terms of you know talking about gender 
uh, issues and and racism. Um, but has experienced herself some fairly toxic aspects of that culture. Said that what she really doesn't like isn't any of the structural things I outlined in the piece, but it's it's the the culture of lacking any kind of like mercy or sense of the possibility of redemption. A, a, a just sort of and she she herself is a, a prison abolitionist. Um, so for her, it's all part of a piece of sort of a, a culture of punitiveness, which cuts across ideological lines, especially in America. Just the the solution to so so you know the solution to income inequality is you you lower the you punish the rich for their you're more punitive towards the rich. The solution towards rape culture is harsher laws about how how accused rapists are 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 tried you know standards of evidence and 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 such um to make it easier to to convict them um the way to and then then and then you know it translates in, into these a lot of these incidents a lot of what's really disagree about disagreeable about these incidents is this just seems like a lack of like thinking about the human element and the Justine case is, is an extreme case, I think, where it was just someone who thought she was talking to her friends because it was before a lot of people really realized that literally anything on Twitter can go viral, no matter how small a fry you are. Um, and she was just, you know, joking with her friends and it got, you know, she got essentially crucified for it. I I wonder how much of this is a temporary bad situation because of an overestimation of how much Twitter is real life. You know, so you mentioned earlier on in our conversation, you mentioned the kind of, you know, you hunt down, you find these these little weird groups, and then you, um, as like a reporter or whatever, you find these weird groups that are saying awful things, and then you make a, you make a big story out of it. Um, and bring them into the conversation and and twitter Twitter makes like the accessibility like global communication much more accessible. You can find what people are saying, you can pile on to people you know and we had a a, a month ago on the show we had Justin Tosi and Brandon Warmke on to talk about their book on grandstanding and a lot of a lot of the concerns we're talking about right now are often grandstanding like people use twitter and get fired up and it's less about like they they don't see the human element because they're not thinking about justine they're thinking about the fun of tweeting and retweeting and making fun of and all of that um but but that a lot of this cancel culture or a lot of a lot of the real abuses that we see of people you know getting getting fired from their jobs blacklisted because they said something that you know maybe was you know they off color, they shouldn't have said it, but it's not it's not the kind of thing that we think like the the proper degree of justice is that they're now unemployable. Um that that maybe what it is is that employers have been overreacting to Twitter mobs. Um and so I'm thinking of just I think this last week, Trader Joe's Basically, there was like a Twitter mob about Trader Joe's naming of some of their products. And Trader Joe's put out a statement that said, like, look, we don't really care. Like, we what we care about is our customers. We measure this based on sales and customer satisfaction. Our customers love these products. They are satisfied with them. If that changes, then we'll change, but we don't really care what you're saying on Twitter. And Twitter erupted, but it felt the eruption felt almost like a calling of Twitter's bluff. 
right? And so I wonder if the way out of this is for employers to say like, look, you guys can rage about our person as much as you want on Twitter, but it doesn't it doesn't actually affect us as an employer because most of the world is not on Twitter. Most of our customers are not on Twitter. Most people will have never heard of this Twitter dust up. And so we can just we can just ignore it. You can be mad at our employee all you want to, but it's not going to it's not going to hurt us and it'll blow over. And so maybe what we're seeing as a restriction on free speech in the culture is just people taking Twitter too seriously. Yeah, to some extent, I, I, I'm sort of curious what goes on in current like PR department, you know, communications departments and uh in in colleges these days and what and more importantly PR agencies and practices on the ground because it feels to me like company PR still is stuck you know 50 years ago or something when you just sort of act the way you just acted you know you said nothing or did as little as possible until things reached some degree of exposure and then you took some like you, you tried to do some small concept basically like things had to reach a certain scale before they were considered a PR disaster. And once they reach that scale, then you start like letting heads roll in order to feed the crowds or whatever, um, you know, calm things down. Um, and I don't think PR has really adapted to the current situation, but I, I couldn't say how it will. It could be that just for always they'll be willing to throw, you know, there's there's always going to be some employees and some products that don't cost much to eat and the uncertainty around what the effect of a PR blow is for a given case is such that some companies some percent of the time are always going to just fire someone in order to appease whoever it might be that's causing a dust up um it could be they get better at sort of like estimating risk based on how much it's actually being talked about on Twitter or who's talking, you know, who's talking, talking about it based on who their follower, you know, how big their followers are or how much the reach of the conversation is. Um, and that might be a factor, but it seems like there's always going to be, as long as the platforms exist, um, there's always going to be some cases where companies are going to react the way that we see them react to cancel culture. Um, just because they find it to be their in, in their interest to do so. What do you think a uh, more healthy debate about free speech looks like? Um, it seems like there's a lot of talking past each other. So, so what's what does a healthy debate look like? I think um, they just read my piece and everything's great. No, um, trying to think about what actually is a reasonable, you know, social sanction for the case. So, I, I link in a piece. To, in the piece to an Arc Digital um, article about that incident with the woman and her dog, who said that she was, who called the cops and said, you know, there's a there's an African American man threatening me or something, and uh, something like 50 people called the rescue that she got the dog from in order to report it, and the rescue pulled pulled the uh, you know took the dog back, and the piece was like, look, this what this woman did was awful. And basically, she was threatening. She was implicitly threatening to get this guy killed, right? Um, if, if anyone deserved to be canceled, it was this woman. But you know, okay, how, how many people is enough? Is was her point? Like when when 
five people have called the employer or the or the rescue. Is that enough? Is fifty people enough? Um, and I think, on the one hand, my criticism of that comment is that those fifty people don't necessarily know how many other people have done it. Right? Um, when something fifty people in the scheme of so a story that's gone viral is, is is a vanishingly small fraction of the audience. And so it's hard to get to a situation where um, if, if you're getting that much intense attention for a story of that kind, you're going to get less than 50 people taking some action like that. Um, so structurally, that's my criticism. But in terms of like what's healthy, I, I actually like her point in terms of if you yourself are thinking of taking some action like that, thinking to yourself, okay, but am, am I the only one who's going to be doing this? And is this really the most important thing? You know, is this the most important thing to be doing to be advancing the cause of racial justice in this country? Absolutely not, right? And I, I, I think that's one of the. So, to, to in a roundabout way, answer your question, the the first, I, I think people should think structurally as much as possible where they can. So, answering the question about racial justice. Ultimately, punishing that woman is not going to solve the racial problems of this country. There's no one thing that's going to fix them, but probably, you know, getting rid of uh, qualified immunity is going to help. Um, probably there are, you know, tackling disenfranchisement in highly African-American communities can help. Just generally doing things to stop the hard edges of the system from coming into contact with African-Americans and empowering African-Americans to make themselves listened uh, to by people in, in power um, are things that will actually make a difference versus going after some specific person that's going to make you feel good about yourself and will maybe send the message that this is a bad thing to do, um, but might just send the message that it's a bad thing to get caught doing you know what i'm saying like there there are big there are bigger things in play for the matter uh, at hand for the thing you're concerned about um so yeah just health, a healthier way of thinking of what action you should actually be taking that's going to actually make that's going to make a substantive difference given the current state of the debate uh, the issues that we're seeing the the cancel culture such as it is that we've discussed, the the reactions of students and faculty on campuses and so on, and and going way back to the beginning of the conversation when you said, you know, these these issues tend to come and go. And I too remember the politically correct 90s and the best-selling politically incorrect bedtime stories book that spoofed it and so on. Um, are you worried about the future of free speech, freedom of expression, and and access to the broader conversation? Or do you think that we're still on the right track or at least can get back on it? I, uh, In terms of access to audiences, I'm really not concerned. I think there are some, you know, the, the platforms thing is a difficult problem. But by and large, I think for now, they've been a net positive like a, a huge net positive, in fact, to giving the common person access to audience, potential audiences. Um, 
So I'm not really concerned about that one. And I think that in as much as the platforms start actively policing, they just encourage alternatives to get built, um, which isn't that hard to do. Um, so even if Substack tomorrow becomes, you know, starts policing, it's not there. There, I, there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing interesting or original about what either Facebook, Twitter, or Substack do. Um, the technology is very simple and easy. Any anyone could make an alternative. Um, so I'm not as worried about that aspect. Um, freedom of speech, I think, is just always under like you. It, it's obviously much we're freer now than we were 50 years ago in terms of freedom of speech, in terms of state censorship specifically. But it's it's constantly being tested. It's constantly being being pushed up back on. I, I, I start out by listing just a few examples. There's Sesta Fosto, which is ostensibly about uh, trafficking, um, but is could very obviously be used to censor uh, websites. Um, obviously, there are those federal forces that have been unleashed in Portland and have been threatened elsewhere. Noah Berlatsky had an interesting piece with us where he argued that the biggest free speech issue is the freedom of speech of groups like the incarcerated, who, if they were to criticize their conditions, you know, if they were to speak out openly about their conditions, would threaten, you know, they'd be threatened with reprisals. Um, and sh shortly after he made that point, uh, I read a book by Alexander Kisar, uh, where he gave an example of in Massachusetts in the 90s, I think, some prisoners formed a, a pack. And in response to that, the, at that point, prisoners still had voting rights in Massachusetts. In response to the media issue that blew up around that uh, organizing, uh, the Massachusetts government disenfranchised prisoners in the state. So, you know, I mean, obviously that wasn't a case where they were censored per se, but that, that, that to me was a clear example of if you're in that vulnerable position, both because you're literally in a prison um, and, you, you know, you have a warden who can beat you up, um, but also because you're socially disrespected, you're low status on the totem pole, um, and therefore the public is more concerned by you exercising influence uh, than by actual state censorship being imposed upon you. Those, those are cases I think that, that's still with us today, very much so, especially since so many states still don't let their, their even, you know, ex-incarcerated uh, vote in some situations. So I, th I still think free speech is something we need to fight for pretty hard. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.